I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, friends, and welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you heard this week's episode already, then you know it's just about Rare Disease Day 2021. It's only a few days away, and we're having a lot of fun and a celebration here in our town, as well as joining everyone globally on social media. So I can't wait to see you there. Episode four of Once Upon a Gene TV is also now streaming on the Disorder channel. This is a great episode, and we're talking with pediatrician and rare mom, Nicole Glenn, about who quarterbacks our medical team and and how can we best advocate in our appointments? Don't miss this episode. Bo Bigelow does the two-minute challenge, and there's a special appearance from Rob Long at Uplifting Athletes. I've had the opportunity to meet so many highly intelligent people who are applying their skills and are deeply motivated to make change in the rare disease community. Today's guest is one of them. After losing his child to a rare congenital disease in 2012, he decided to apply his years of postdoctoral clinical genomics data research experience at National Institutes of Health and Industry Product Development Experience to develop a technology platform to help accelerate clinical research. As a founder and CEO of Jiva Informatics and founder chairman of the international humanitarian nonprofit Indio-US Organization for Rare Disease, He's on a mission to bring fresh perspectives and innovation to bring faster cures by engaging patients and participants in clinical research. Please enjoy my conversation with Harsha Rajasima. Harsha, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Effie. Yes, I'm really excited to get to know you a little more and learn about what you're doing. You're so busy. You have so much under your belt and you're just continuing to move forward in so many ways for the rare disease community. It's kind of hard to wrap my mind around it. Thank you. And it's just uh, hard to stop. You know, there's so much to do. <laughs> there is. Can you tell us how you became involved in rare disease or in this community? Sure, certainly. You know, just like a lot of people in the rare disease space, mostly driven by personal experiences, I am a genomics data scientist trained at Virginia Tech and was going through my day-to-day -day life as a genomics data scientist at National Institutes of Health, uh, at the Cancer Institute, and at the Eye Institute. And by 2012, I had published over 15 articles and had been uh, enjoying my, my job. In 2012, we had a child born with a rare congenital disease, Edwards syndrome. And of course, the physician or the neonatologist told us that the baby was not a viable baby at birth. And uh, so that opened my eyes to the other side of the coin, if you will. Until that point, to me, research was all on the computational and the data side and the genomes, big data, and all that, which, which was very exciting and impactful and all that but I was not as empathetic or say aware or aware of constantly as to what happens on the patients and families that, that go through these rare genetic disease experiences. So that led me to turn into a social entrepreneur and I decided to apply 
my years of postdoctoral uh, research experience towards accelerating clinical research, uh, leading to faster diagnostics as well as therapies for rare diseases. So sorry for the loss of your little baby. Edwards syndrome is brutal and short. Yes, it is. Uh, thank you. So what did you do after that? I mean, I'm sure there was, you know, an incredible grieving period after losing a child. How did you get to the point to where you knew you wanted to do something more meaningful with all of your education and your experience? Absolutely. You know, uh, it took several months of grieving, soul searching, what went wrong, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, by uh, and that happened started in August when that's when the uh, baby passed away. And by December, I had done some basic research looking at what happens in the rare disease community in the U.S. And being at the National Institutes of Health, you know, walked into the Office of Rare Disease Research, met with Dr. Stephen Groft and Dr. Rashmi Gopal Srivastava and others, and learned about the NARD uh, or the National Organization for Rare Disorders, uh, Global Genes, and all the good work uh, and the 30 years of progress that had occurred around the Orphan Drug Act which provides incentives for R&D here. But what struck me as someone who was born and raised in India until uh, college uh, was that there was absolutely nothing I could find on the internet as a policy framework, even a definition of a rare disease in India, like we have in the US, a lot was missing. And, and there was not a single not, uh, umbrella organization advocating for all patients with rare disease in India. And so it became clear to me that, that, that that's a very obvious place to start. Um, and so I made a trip in February of 2013 to uh, visit India at the Bangalore India Bio Conference and met a number of key stakeholders there and started pulling together like-minded individuals to start forming a nonprofit foundation ended up becoming the organization for rare diseases india and you know before it, it took almost an year from january february of 2013 uh, through 2014 to really do some market research discovery interviews talking to medical geneticists so the diagnosis and treatments were happening in india just that there was no not nationally organized and concerted effort organization so uh, i pulled together all the individuals who were already doing some good work in that space and authored a article that we published for everybody's benefit in the cambridge journal genetics research and uh, happy to share that with anyone interested uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, a, a paid. Uh, it's not a free article to download, but, but happy to share a PDF for those interested. Okay, perfect. And so what about this organization? What is the mission for it in how it connects to bringing the Indian culture and the rare disease community there to the U.S.? The first organization that I led the farming of in India primarily is focused on the Indian subcontinent and uh, nationally focused to raise mass awareness, you know, through media, through education and awareness events, continuing medical education program and, and so forth, which I'm no longer, so I, I served as a co-founder and co-chair of the board uh, until last year. And I moved out and then founded the Indo-US Organization for Rare Diseases exactly for the reason that, that you just brought up, which is how do we build 
collaborations and connectivity between India and the United States because we have made a lot of progress here in the US and 95% of all rare diseases remain without any FDA approved therapy. But the 5% of diseases that do have FDA approved treatments, uh, almost all of them were made in US or EU. Uh, and approved by FDA or EMA, and most of them are not commercialized in India or rest of the world. You know, they, they are made available on a case-by-case basis at best through compassionate use programs or expanded access programs. So I believe, uh, you know, I, I learned over a course of seven, eight years of being a rare disease advocate is that to make the next wave of progress around the cell and gene therapies and orphan drugs, especially to make them affordable. We need to see stronger collaborations between United States and Indian subcontinent, which is really good in affordable innovation on the Indian side. A lot of uh, low cost and high quality biostatistics and computational work or preclinical research. There is a lot of complementarity there in relation to the venture investments, biotech investments, and long-term focused innovation in the cell and gene therapy that that U.S. has already taken a leadership position. More than 60% of all clinical trials uh, happen in the U.S. alone, uh, or or at least originated here, whereas less than 2% have any footprint in India. And so that offers a very obvious way of, you know, uh, building collaborative bridges between United States and India to accelerate clinical research. And that's exactly what we are doing with the new Indo-US organization for rare diseases that that I founded last year and brought together a group of philanthropists and rare disease advocates uh, who have been very familiar with with this industry and pays for many years now. Wow, that's remarkable. So really making this all become a global entity rather than just maybe the big hitters in the game and adding so many more patients to the mix, which obviously can help with diversity and making it more affordable with supply and demand in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and rare disease is a global concern, as as you know very well as well, Ify. Yeah. You know, there, there's, uh, there are three, 350 million people living with rare and undiagnosed diseases, which a majority of them probably are in the undiagnosed bucket. And, and we need to bring them all into a global, say, focus. Otherwise, you know, United States cannot continue to underwrite the cost of making these new innovative therapies for the rest of the world as well, right? So if we make the entire global market available to the biotech innovators, the uh, return on investment can occur faster and the cost uh, affordability can be achieved only through that type of a global commercialization, right? Otherwise, if it's only planned to commercialize in US and maybe 10 years later will be made available in India or rest, uh, other countries, then essentially U.S. has already paid for uh, the entire cost of developing the drug, which is now like two and a half billion uh, per successful therapy developed. So how does this organization connect to your company, Jiva? There is no connection between the two, except that both have the same uh, vision of accelerating clinical research, whereas Indo-U.S. organization is focused on advocacy, cross-border collaborations and education, Jiva is focused on developing technology innovations. And the the research sides, hitting those both. Tell us a little bit about Jiva. Sure. So Jiva is a venture um, uh, investor-backed technology startup on a mission to accelerate clinical research through 
bring your own device-based, cloud-based software that essentially enables remote, touchless patient recruitment and electronic informed consent and data collection. In patient registry programs, natural history studies, or other clinical research uh, studies. So how is this changing with the clinical trials right now? First being so exclusive, right? Like you have to fly to Boston, you have to fly to LA to be involved in these. How is this different now with all the technology that's being implemented and with companies like Jiva? How are you bridging that gap? Yeah, great question. You know, typically uh, most clinical studies have had had to go through these pitfalls of uh, travel burden and having to use multiple tools for different aspects of the clinical study, like, you know, communication via text, uh, audio, video, or calendar scheduling, form-based, survey-based data collection, video conferencing, and so forth. So there is a number of different tools that clinical study team end up uh, juggling between and toggling between, which has been very inefficient. And so there, there was a need for a integrated end-to-end package where they can use a single software that can essentially enable recruitment through study closeout, uh, all all of it. And patient recruitment or getting patients enrolled in a clinical study still remains the largest uh, bottleneck in, in the clinical study process. And so doing that with reduced travel burden without requiring one on one in-person live interactions between a physician, investigator, and a patient, which has been the gold standard and the traditional method, but very inefficient. And in the COVID pandemic has taught us that that recipe for disaster in that, you know, many studies had to be put on pause or even completely canceled because we, we could not have patients visit clinics unless it was absolutely necessary especially if it's a vulnerable population like the patients with rare diseases. And so we needed needed a way to do remote and touchless way of informed consenting. And the challenge is the institutional review boards view informed consent as divine, right? So they want to protect this divine contract between the physician investigator and the patient. And they want to see that patients had enough opportunity to understand the risk and benefit of a clinical study ask questions and get all the clarification and then that that's truly an informed consent it, it's not simply a, a way of collecting electronic signatures and so that's basically what's changed is now irbs the investigators and patients they, they all want convenience and and even ensuring continuity of clinical studies which, which cannot be done in person anymore. Uh, and so we need flexibility for hybrid or fully remote approaches, not just for one-time informed consent, but also as the study changes over a period of time, the ability to uh, adapt and change and be flexible uh, to do reconsenting and go back and say, hey, you know, we want to collect these additional data and use the data for these additional research questions and be able to reconsent as well. All that we need a single software solution, which also works on any mobile device. You know, uh, in, historically there have been studies where using software tools or apps that only worked on an Apple device or an Android device, and those 
would hurt the ability to ensure diversity of participants in, in the clinical research. So a bring your own device model would ensure, you know, participants uh, who are using a variety of different mobile devices like tablets, PC, laptop, or mobile smartphones on different operating systems can, can all uh, participate. And so ensuring a better diversity. Yeah, it's really it's really going to be transforming everything in that way. It's very cool. Have you noticed already or has it even happened enough for you to be able to gauge whether or not patients themselves are more compliant or more consistent or even more excited to participate and follow through with what they need to as a patient in these trials? Yeah, you know, in, in especially in rare disease communities, you know, patients are the drivers of clinical research, right? Like, so they are the ones who push uh, even researchers and bring together all the relevant resources and stakeholders to the table, and they are very motivated to move the needle. And, and that's what is ensuring that despite not being commercially a attractive or viable proposition, the field continues to move forward and new therapies are uh, being made and that's patients are the key uh, stakeholder uh, who is making that happen. How do families even find out about what clinical trials are available for them? Yeah, so that's a problem that we don't solve in uh, either um, Jiva or Indo-US Rare necessarily, but that's something the NIH, the FDA, and many other foundations uh, that, that make that as their primary goal. I think, you know, the clinicaltrials.gov is one portal with, uh, in that, you know, is database of all clinical research, which probably covers about 80% of all clinical trials globally. But there are some clinical research that may be happening outside of US and EU, which may not be covered in that database also. But in any case, for a patient, that, that, that's one of the things we want to generally raise awareness ab uh, about is clinical research or clinical trial is probably the best bet for patients with rare diseases, irrespective of where they live, right? Because only 5% have any FDA-approved treatments. For someone diagnosed with the remaining 95% of the rare diseases, the best hope for them is that there is a new, first innovative new medicine or therapy that's in clinical trial right now. And they, they should not be waiting for five, 10 years for that to get through the regulatory approvals and then be able to pay out of pocket or, or hope that insurance will cover it. And so the best thing that they can do is uh, learn about these studies and reach out and see if they are eligible and see if they can enroll and access those life-saving therapies even while they are uh, currently ongoing. And, and so that's something, uh, you know, there is no one place uh, that, that can help them achieve this goal yet. And, and so the, the, probably the best place to start is clinicaltrials.gov and also reach out to patient organizations. You know, if, if it's a muscular dystrophy, they can reach out to any number of muscular dystrophy related patient foundations that already exist, for example. And they might be able to, uh, they may be tracking all the upcoming or ongoing clinical trials and they will be able to help them identify the right one that might be a good fit. Thank you. What's the role throughout the entire process and even afterwards from a clinical trial that 
Jiva is involved in with the patient? Great question. You know, one of the things we did, Effie, is uh, we, we did not start building the product just like that one fine day. It's something we took uh, a lot of time. I, I would say at, uh, almost a year and a half uh, on and talking to more than 500 stakeholders of clinical research, uh, including, of course, starting with patients and patient advocates, but also investigators, CROs, hospital sites, research coordinators, sponsors, regulatory agencies. And we we asked them questions. We, We listened and we participated in these discussions. And what we heard is one of the key complaints that patients had is we don't get the results back after a clinical trial is completed or that you know they make us travel to the hospital sites even to simply sign a piece of paper you know wish we we could be uh, they, they have to take half a day off a, a single mom taking half a day off from work to take their child to NIH for example you know uh, to participate in a clinical visit many times these visits are considered unnecessary as Basically, they ask like five questions during that period or maybe measure some vitals uh, at most. You know, th- there are some visits which are justifiable and do require travel. If there is an MRI scan or, you know, some uh, sample collection or procedures involved. However, th- there is a number of follow-up visits and data collection type studies, which which can be done without burdening both the patients and their caregivers. And so that's Taking all these into account and patient perspectives, we started building and, and we are just uh, about to offer free trial of our software to a number of patient registry studies, uh, a pediatric children's hospitals and various other university academic medical center based uh, clinical research studies that can be configured rapidly and, and be able to get faster data collection all uh, with, with little or no in-person travel involved. You're basically taking away the bureaucracy of it all for patients and families so they can get these treatments. Exactly. And and that's something, you know, it was a trend that was anyway unfolding itself. And, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But I started with here because this is what drives me. I wake up every day in the morning thinking of these problems. And, and so I'm. that's why I consider myself a social entrepreneur. Uh, of course, we do need to uh, do good uh, and solve real problems and ma- uh, you know, make sure pa- it's really patient-centric in terms of solving problems that matter to the patients first. Amen. And I love that that conversation has been happening a lot just over in the last year that I've seen, like on Twitter and everything, the conversation of patients being at the forefront as well and having a seat at the table. It's really important. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you most hopeful about with either your organization or your company in the next year? So my dream is to see that in my lifetime, an orphan drug approved for commercialization simultaneously in the United States and India or rest uh, the entire world, right, essentially. <laughs> and, and and so usually it's U.S. first, then Europe, and then Japan, and then the rest of the world will is a long tail, you know, takes decades or longer 
especially as the medicines get more and more expensive, the longer it takes to commercialize them in the rest of the world. And so that's one hope or goal is to make concrete advances in building US-India bilateral relationships and making rare disease and orphan drugs a priority in, in our bilateral relationships between these two countries. The second is that a rapid adoption. Uh, what we did accomplish as a uh, life science industry as a whole for COVID-19 is nothing short of a, a miracle of a century, right? In just six months or nine months we from when uh, the country was first uh, shut down or travel restrictions were imposed, we have uh, we are close to an approved uh, vaccine uh, from multiple biotech companies like Moderna and Pfizer. Never ever has this happened ever, and and you know usually it takes ten to uh, twelve years on an average, and costs two and a half billion dollars. And we did spend two and a half billion or more, probably more money, but we were able to get the vaccine number of multiple vaccine options now uh, from AstraZeneca as well added to that list in, in a very short period of time. So I think if we can apply what we did in COVID, democratize it and make it available at scale through technology, I think that's the that's my vision and hope for Jiva. Well, your commitment is so obvious and especially coming from not only your background professionally, but your unique perspective as a parent to a child who had a rare disease is just, it's really, it's magnificent. And it, the passion behind the work that you do is what's going to continue to make it succeed. I believe that. Thank you, Effie. And, and, you know, it does take a village and I'm so grateful to the entire rare disease community, which uh, always welcomes any any new advocate and parent and patient into this community with both open arms. And uh, I have uh, enormously benefited and learned a lot about existing challenges, the historical challenges and what worked and what did not and trying to contribute in my own little way uh, as I do have a unique perspective given who I am and where I came from and where I'm going. So how can parents like me and our small advocacy groups engage with you and move our own stuff along or connect in any way? Great question. You know, uh, I invite uh, every patient advocate or foundation to uh, look at indousrare.org and we invite you to join our patient alliance, especially if you believe in bridging United States and India and connecting with patients on the other side of the planet. That's what we primarily are set up to do is uh, help facilitate conversations, collaborations, engagement. You know, if there is a patient registry program already going on or you have uh, patient support services uh, and other uh, activities and, and even working towards a therapy for your rare disease, uh, it, it will only help if you, you know, combine forces and build strength with uh, your counterparts in India and other countries. So uh, that that's one Patient Alliance membership is a program that, that I invite you to uh, join. And if you are in the process of planning your patient registry, natural history study, or other uh, clinical research studies for your rare disease community, certainly talk to me or Jiva for our software solution uh, and how we can uh, support your clinical study. Mm, that's excellent. Thank you, Harsha. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave with our audience before we close? 
No, I think uh, thank you for this opportunity and you, you are doing a fantastic job of uh, uh, getting all the voices heard and bringing all the stories and personal experiences to uh, everybody's attention. And I think COVID-19 has taught us all a lot this year and it's been a difficult year. Amen to that. Thank you so much, Harsha. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.